This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode. Welcome, and thank you for setting aside some time with us today. This is Jennifer Shemansky. I am the co-host of the podcast committee and the communications committee, and joining me today is Rasa Fumagali from Synergy Settlement Services. Rasa is the uh, Director of MSP Compliance. And um, also joining us today is Bridget Smith, who is with me at NewQuest. And Bridget is our Vice President of Compliance and Customer Relations. Welcome, ladies. Hello. Hi. Hello. So our topic today is going to be allocating and allocations. And I think really the main point we're, we're going to try and get across today is really all allocations are not equal, correct? Yes, absolutely. There are differences. Right, so um, as far as the differences, how do you get started, right? So you're, you're ready to work on a case. Now you're thinking about doing the allocating. Let's kind of assume for purposes of our conversation that you have everything that you need in order to do the allocation. We won't really walk through the pieces of, you know, what we need for medical records, those kind of things. Let's focus on maybe the allocations themselves. So what's the first thing that's coming to your mind when, when you're ready to do this case and, and you're ready to do the allocating? Yep. So uh, one of the things uh, that really comes to your mind is the, is the type of case, but also what is required under the law, right? Under that Medicare Secondary Payer Act. What's required to protect Medicare's interests? And if you look at the act, we all know it's silent on MSAs, but what it does say is that you should not shift the burden to CMS to pay for injury-related expenses. And if you do, basically they, they want paid back. So with that as the overarching theme, how do you how do you get to that point, right, Rasa? How do you get to making sure that you're not shifting the burden to CMS? And I, I think it kind of depends on what type of case it is, right? So thank you, Bridget. You know, in addition to looking at the Medicare Secondary Payer Act, I think it's really important to, you know, avoid a cost shift of injury-related expenses to Medicare, but you have to look at the context of the settlement itself, because Medicare is only a payer of last resort or a secondary payer in regard to the parameters of that settlement agreement. So, you know, I would look at, is this a liability Medicare set aside that we are gonna be allocating for, or is it a worker's comp settlement? And you've gotta start with, well, what are the injuries that are being alleged or released? What is this case about? And then you have to really sort of tailor the projections to make sure that they fit the parameters of the case that is being settled. Right. And, and I think that's a, a great point, Rasa, because liability claims are, are very much a different entity than um, workers' compensation claims. And, and the way uh, liability settlements are, um, are crafted, uh, the types of damages in liability that aren't uh, available in comp all make for a, a much more complex uh, allocation of, of what part of the settlement really is for the medical, what part of the settlement really is for 
other things, including, um, you know, loss of consortium, including um, other aspects such as uh, pain and suffering uh, that we that we would not see in workers' compensation, and that does uh, create a different framework. And I, I think, in addition to that, um, with with respect to the allocation itself, you you talked a, a, a little bit. We talked a little bit about, you know, getting to the point where we're not shifting the burden to Medicare, but um, there's a lot of different ways to get to that point, right? Um, as far as the allocation and the way you allocate. So for example, evidence-based fee schedule, do you wanna talk a little bit about, about that? Sure, for example, in liability settlements, you know, we are gonna look at, you know, really what are the injuries that are being addressed in this particular case? And because we do not have the ability to have Medicare review a liability MSA, and because the issues are different, as you pointed out, in a liability settlement, as opposed to a situation where a comp carrier clearly is on the hook for open medical, you know, it's, it's usually a very disputed settlement. So our allocators are going to be looking at the medical records, and they're going to be projecting treatment that is medically reasonably likely to occur as opposed to something that is mentioned as a possibility. So if you know this plaintiff, this injury victim is unable to have a procedure because of comorbid conditions that are really not going to change, even though in a perfect world they would recover and they could have this sort of possible future treatment, it's really not gonna happen. You know, if you looked at the likelihood or the odds of it happening. So in a liability MSA, we would not include that in the future treatment projection. We would also look at, well, you know, if the black box warnings for a specific drug indicate that this doctor is not going to continue to prescribe this drug because of the fact that this individual is 75 years old or, you know, whatever the case may be, we are going to project based on evidence-based medicine guidelines. We're going to project based on realistically what is likely to happen as opposed to this possibility of what might happen. And as opposed to the, you know, you've got to protect the Medicare trust fund. I mean, I think what you really should be doing is you should be considering Medicare's interest in a settlement while protecting the plaintiff's ongoing eligibility for Medicare covered treatment. What do you think, Bridget? I, I think that's so well put, Ross, I really do. and. And that's part of this, right? The, the realistic nature of the future of this individual, the medical realistic nature of, of what this individual is actually going to undertake in medical treatment. And, and I think we've all seen that sometimes that is very different than what we, we can get back with a traditional MSA, for example, in workers' compensation cases. Um, again, that's a possibility versus the probability. So uh, along with allocations, if you're submitting um, something to CMS, then, then obviously you're approaching that allocation in the way that, that CMS would look at the allocation, right? So you're, you're approaching it by using the, you know, if a doctor mentions that the claimant is um, able to undergo a surgery, but for a comorbid condition, you're still including that, right? Um, and, and that's an example that um, 
CMS gave on the recent webinar that they they hosted. And so that's something that they said they would include that. Um, and in a in the context of, of a workers' compensation submission to CMS, which which is voluntary, um, the law hasn't changed with that respect in that respect, you know, that's when you're looking at an allocation, you're looking at it in a different lens when you're submitting. And even, you know, as you said, liability, we don't have those same formal requirements, but even with formal requirements, you know, are you still, you know, protecting the beneficiary and also, you know, making sure you reasonably consider Medicare's interests by still using that methodology? And I, I'd say the answer is yes, if you use it correctly, right? That evidence-based approach is, is applicable. And also with, with those cases that even are not at threshold, right? If you choose the submission process, um, you know, what are you doing for those, Rasa? Okay. So in a workers' comp setting, cases that are not going to be submitted to CMS for review, I think a lot of it really depends on, well, what is this case about? You know, how much is this case settling for? I mean, if the case is settling for $18,000, you know, you, you cannot have a projection that is going to be greater than the $18,000 if it's settling on a compromise basis. You know, in that situation, perhaps there's a mention of a possible surgery for $30,000 if you were to project it out. But if the settlement is $18,000 and it's disputed, you know, you're not going to have any carrier pay $18,000 plus what the full value of this possible surgery would be. So I think that, you know, there are different ways that you can kind of support how you're considering Medicare's interest in this sort of disputed under threshold situation. For example, you can apportion some of that net settlement for this future injury related care that's disputed using the formula under 42 CFR, what is it, 411.4? Jennifer, would you please speak and tell me exactly what that number is? It's 411.47. All right, 411.47. So, you know, you have to be practical about this. And, you know, I believe a frustration that many individuals have is that people really are not trying to, you know, through their actions, make the Medicare trust fund deplete prematurely. You know, people are realistically trying to take into account that Medicare has an interest, that right. taxpayers that are funding, you know, the Medicare trust fund really shouldn't be paying for things that a carrier or a defendant is responsible for. I think sometimes um, it has become so complicated and so difficult to have a reasonable approach with it that, you know, it's frustrating for people that are settling. You know, if it's an $18,000 disputed compromise settlement, even if CMS were willing to look at it, it's not appropriate, in my opinion, to force a carrier to fund $30,000 for this possibility of a surgery where the carrier also has a good shot of not even being responsible for it in the workers' comp case. Right. And and I think I think it goes along too with, with you know, what, each particular program is structured like, right? So um, depending on the type of organization, the type of, um, you know, customer that you have, some of them may want a, 
a submission approach and a, a more um, submission-like allocation, right? Um, and that, that can be that, that that's their approach to Medicare compliance and future allocations. While others um, want the evidence-based approach that deals with you know, the probable rather than the possible um, and, and looks at you know, what those medical records have said in the past and what the treating physicians say, and then you know, medical, uh, medical compendia for the support of that. Um, for drugs, we talk about that a lot. It might not be supported by medical compendia to, to really allocate for an entire lifetime for um, narcotic medications that aren't clinically indicated for a client, for a claimant or a uh, beneficiary. So, you know, there, those, there's that approach that, that people uh, utilize uh, because they're comfortable with it. And again, it's something that you mentioned, you know, it's what you can support and it's supported, right? A supported approach. Um, and there's others that, that do kind of a hybrid of both. So I, I think it also, in addition to looking at the type of case and the, the settlement amount and the Medicare Secondary Payer Act, it's also the type of program that each individual entity has, right? Absolutely. I think the important data that we're kind of missing is, you know, CMS is tracking how many of these CMS reviewed determinations, for example, are exhausted and they're presented with bills for payment to determine whether they've been administered properly or not. I think it would be important to see figures showing that when you have non-submitted MSAs, how often are these actually exhausted and Medicare is presented with bills for payment in that setting? Because if realistically, there is some evidence that these non-submitted MSAs are underfunded and Medicare is being left holding the bag, you know, that data would support, you know, that maybe there's something wrong or there's something going on that smacks of a cost shift. But without numbers to say that these non-submits are being prematurely exhausted, you don't really know that they have a leg to stand on with their, you know, policy and practice statement that, you know, CMS is going to view the non-submits in a certain fashion. Right. And, and I think that's a good point. And, and not every evidence-based non-submit is the same either, right? So all data can be skewed, right? Um, and I think, I think that is an important part, a piece of the puzzle that, um, that's not out there, right? We can say, I can say what I know from my perspective and, and the lack of evidence that that's an issue, um, but I can't say with every non-submit uh, program. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing that that I think is important as well is the data, and I believe CMS said they, that they were going to provide us uh, this on the call, but the data regarding those approved uh, WCMSAs where treatment for medical is being denied, um, you know, what, why, why, what is the reason for that? I'd be curious to see what the reason is for that, um, to see if it's, if it's always just based on the claimant not properly, you know, administering the MSA, or is it based upon um, a claimant really 
having uh, additional treatment that wasn't anticipated at the time the MSA was created. I think that's that that's another caveat that's really important because, again, it's uh, the allocation is not a crystal ball, right? It's a projection, and so oftentimes, you know, claimants or plaintiffs, um, beneficiaries can go through medical treatment that no one could have anticipated, right? And and so what in those situations, you know, there should be more than a, a straight denial, I in my opinion. I think, you know, everything is based on a snapshot in time. So right. the evidence-based medicine allocation that is submitted to CMS for review, for example, or um, an MSA submission that is projected kind of based along the workers' comp MSA reference guide. You know, it's all gonna, that number is gonna depend on the time that this is being submitted to CMS and the time of settlement. So if you are looking at some issue 10 years down the road, and if you're thinking, was this reasonable? You cannot be looking at what the current medical condition is. You've gotta be looking at what the records supported 10 years ago at the time that that MSA was completed because it's a snapshot in time. So I think that, you know, it's important to have a Medicare set aside recommendation in a comp situation, take into account what is going on at time of settlement. If the case does not settle, and this is a situation where you've had CMS review, well then avail yourself to the amended review process if you wanna have CMS sign off on a change of circumstances. So, so I think the key is, you know, we don't really have a crystal ball. All we can do is make a good faith assessment at the time of settlement based on the records that we do have. Yeah, and I, I think, I think Rasa, that, that is what we, everybody does with all allocations, right? It's a, that right. good estimate. And, and maybe, you know, that's the real point of the allocation. You know, what is your, what is a good faith analysis estimate of the future costs, regardless of what type of claim or what type of, of program you have, if you're doing non-submits or, or submissions, you know, what is that, that good faith estimate? And I think that's a perfect, perfect um, uh, way to put it, actually. Well, you know, in terms of, you know, one of the comments that you made about CMS you know, how many times are they actually denying treatment when you have a CMS reviewed MSA? You know, I believe that, you know, there was a study that was recently done that was published, you know, within the industry where there was sort of a look at what was taking place. And I do believe at the MSPN annual conference, there was, there was discussion of denials. And I think a lot of the problem is is related to administration snafus, you know, so if you have a self-administered MSA and there's a denial, it might very well be because the attestation shows that these funds were used to pay the mortgage. You know, I, I think a lot of that is, you know, why you might see a denial. I think if you, and I truly do believe that professional administration is the way to go to extend the life of the funds. And that's just a good practice. But I think the denials stem from administration issues. And it looks like Jen wanted to say something. Well, you had mentioned the, the changes. I think it's kind of important to go back and reiterate how different it is if they're looking at it now from an MSA that was done 10 or 15 years ago. And you guys both mentioned the medical but I think one of the overwhelming sources of that difference is prescriptions, right? 
how prescriptions could be different and how that's so impactful because potentially if they're on a brand new prescription that is for the injury, it could be very expensive and it could change that, you know, it could deplete that in no time at all. Right. And so it's, it's, you know, important to remember circumstances are just vastly different. You have no control over, you know, your Bridget was exactly correct. We don't have crystal balls. You can only work with what you, the information that you have at the time that you're doing the case, right? Well, I think, you know, that whole crystal ball kind of thing and how drugs might significantly change with time. I think that is sort of the justification that Medicare gives for why they're projecting these drugs in that fashion. You know, even though realistically, you might not be using oxycodone at this strength forever or whatever, you know, if there's an expensive drug, but I think they're trying to give themselves some space for the possibility that there's going to be an even more expensive drug that is injury related down the road. And so, you know, we want to, you know, it's a balance really between what is a reasonable injury related allocation with Medicare's view of, well, we don't want to be stuck holding the bag. So I know that they're, they're trying to kind of balance between the two competing interests. But I think it's unfortunate that, you know, there's a position that is being taken, you know, a person hasn't seen a doctor for four years before the case settles for their injury related treatment. Nothing is specifically being recommended. Why would you assume that there's going to be some sort of a new need for follow-up care or x-rays that realistically are never going to happen. I think that is one of the things that sort of turns people off when we're talking about MSAs being submitted to CMS for review. Yeah, I, I, I think there's definitely some frustration there. Um, and, and, you know, let, let's, be, let's be honest, you know, allocations in and of themselves, um, you know, can be difficult to pinpoint sometimes, right? Uh, they, they can be. Uh, and it's no, it's, you know, it can't, it's, it's just by its very nature, uh, projecting for someone's whole life expectancy cannot be an exact science because just things change, things happen, drugs go off market, new drugs come on, all of those things. But like you said, it, it, it is that, that snapshot in time. And, you know, I, I think, you know, no matter what route you take for allocations, uh, you know, uh, the submission, the non-submit, um, and the type of claim, I think it, it, it really is. What does, what does that snapshot look at like? And, and if we looked at it right now, how would it look in the future? And how are we gonna price that out? And, and the way you do it, having substantiation for it, I think is, is important. It's you know, not just a random um, type of analysis. Well, you know, $2,000 sounds good, right? Uh, and I know people do that and, and maybe that in some cases fits, but you know, having something that is, you know, so a solid um, analysis, I think is also really important. People who are engaged in the business of allocating and, you know, giving advice on MSP, you know, strategies and so forth, you know, we're professionals, we are making the best judgment that we can given the facts that we have. So there's clearly no intention of cost shifting I don't believe on the part of anybody who is engaged in this business. 
Right. Agreed. Agreed, Rasa. Well, thank you both for your time today. We appreciate your thoughts and your, and your positions. And thank you to everybody who's listening today for setting aside some time. And we'll look for you on the next episode of the podcast. Thank you, Jen. Thank Take you. Take care.